Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Wow, this is not what I envisioned at all. I thought it was much smaller, this room. Behind every grand congressional hearing room, like here in the Longworth House office building, there's a back room where history is secretly made. We've heard the descriptions of this room. Yeah, I've been in the library several times. I've never been in here. I met Rachel Bade and Karen Demergen in one of these back rooms. In this case, a small wood-paneled library replete with leather-bound books and a marble fireplace. Just outside is one of the most iconic spaces in the Capitol. It's technically the Ways and Means Committee's hearing room, but it's also where House leaders go when they want to make a splash. It's a room, in fact, that played a crucial role in both of former President Donald Trump's two impeachments. It's the room where the Trump impeachment investigations were introduced to the country. Everybody who tuned their TVs in to watch any of those hearings in 2019 were watching what was happening in this room. That's Karen, a national security reporter at The Washington Post. She and Rachel, Playbook's co-author, wrote a new book, Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. It's out on October 18th. The overwhelming emotion that I had while reading all 600-some pages of your wonderful book was PTSD. Oh, yes. <laughs> I thought you might say nostalgia for a second, oh. but no such luck. Yeah. This is Playbook Deep Dive. My name is Mike DeBonis. I'm Playbook's editor, sitting in this week for Ryan Lizza. When Rachel Karn and I were reporters on the Washington Post congressional team, we covered the Trump impeachments together. The book is a scoop-filled account that goes inside rooms like this one, revealing what happened when the Democrats pressed the first impeachment through the court of public opinion instead of investigating Trump more aggressively. It also shows how Republicans repeatedly scrambled to protect Trump emboldening him right up to the day, January 6, 2021, that a rampaging mob forced scores of them to hide out for hours, right here in 1100 Longworth. Unchecked also argues how, after two flawed impeachments, this could all happen again and again. Impeachment was long seen as the Constitution's last resort, a grave, careful, and exceedingly rare process. No longer does that seem to be the case. I'll just make a personal observation, you know, I mean, I remember just having this vivid sense of watching history unfold before me. And there was this, all this sort of pomp and circumstance, you know, there was this lofty language and, you know, she would talk about oaths and, and all of this, you know, solemnity and, you know, the trial in the Senate has these sort of almost religious, you know, sort of rituals around it. I just remember watching all of that and feeling like, wow, this is history. I'm going to tell my grandkids about this. It's three years later, and I don't, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like I'm going to watch this movie a bunch more times before over I'm dead. Over and over and over. There's already been so many articles of impeachment filed against Biden. Biden. Mm -hmm. I mean, the GOP is not in charge of the House right now, but they may be a couple weeks after this book publishes, and it's pretty clear where the intention of a lot of that conference is to to act on that. And the bar for doing impeachment can be technically, I suppose, whatever you want, right? Because there's no proscribed, the this is how you must impeach. Right. They the just said you have the, However, but they put it a hard, they put it at a high bar. The, so, the, yeah. the count, well, the counter argument of, but this is lowering the bar of impeachment. This is appealing to a lower standard. Again, remember, you got to take out the substance of what the case is about. We've impeached on all kinds of things. People can argue that Nixon versus Clinton, and they did, you know. But if you take out the substance of what it's about and just go on the structure, right, the structure, much lower bar than there used to be for putting together this sort of an impeachment and trial. I want to go back to this notion of botched and uh, what do we mean by that? And like, yeah, I, I did want to thank you for mentioning that because yeah. that was actually one of my the, the questions that I, I really wanted to ask you at the top, which yeah. is, you know, the subtitle of the book is it's pretty remarkable. Like, yeah. you know, the, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. It's a very pugnacious word. It's very direct. 
you know, there's no mistaking what your perspective is on that. And why was it important to use that word? Why did you choose to use it? We got, we've gotten a lot of flack about that word. We'll just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Certain very high level people uh, running around and yelling at everybody who cooperated with us because of this. Anyway, Anyway. um, I just want to say. Well, let me, I'm going to press you on that. Yeah, no, no, no. no, no. Let's get back to that in a minute though. Because I want to say something about botched. You know, it's not just about convicting and barring Trump from office or a president from office. It was also about turning the public against the president. So, like, you can be successful with impeachment by a number of ways. Yes, you can try to remove the president. But you can do what they did with Nixon, which is they really, you know, sniffed out evidence. They did all these hearings. They spent a year and a half building this case. They fought in the courts. They finally got evidence to make Republicans turn against Nixon. And... Nixon stepped down before he got impeached. So, like, if you can't get the votes to remove someone from office, which there was always a question about whether or not the Republicans or Democrats could do this, given the Republican Party, they could have at least done a better job at making their argument to the nation and trying to convince more people than just their own party that Trump was a bad guy who was not worthy of the Oval Office. Try to convince not only independent voters, but a lot of Republican voters and That was something that was very much botched. There was never that sort of attempt to really go the extra mile in the fact-finding to make that case to people. Until now. Until now. Many, many months. Let's talk about the January 6th committee. The January 6th committee's process is an argument that supports the thesis of this book. Exactly, yes. The fact that they are doing all of these things now is fine. They're doing all these things now, but they're doing it with... uh, several months, more than a year, removed from the actual president who was in office at the time, they will not be able to start impeachment charges against an ex-president because, like, he's not even in the office anymore. So that's And they've not, already done it. They've already been supported. Right, but so, that's, yeah. right. So it's, you know, I don't, I don't know if double jeopardy applies right. to impeachment. Right, but, sure. um, but anyway, but that that's not something that's the end game for them. They are trying to create a public record of this. And also, the problem, though, is of doing this is that the special January 6th commission is not really a recipe for how to do this when you have the president that you're trying to oust in the office, right? They have a cooperative right. president right now, yeah. or at least not an antagonistic president. Yeah, they have a that's Justice Department that's office. enforcing these subpoenas. The Justice Department is actually charging some of these people, right? That, w- that would not have happened in um, the right. Trump-Bill Barr sure. world, right? right. And, and so we're you talking about a completely different yeah. environment of, of inputs here, which is not something that can stand in the way of the impeachment precedent and the oversight precedent for Congress versus a, a person that's your, your adversary in the office, not your friend. So I, I want to start start out by saying this book tells this incredible story. It gets inside of these rooms. It has incredible scoops that we're going to learn about. And I'm not going to give away all of those uh, all those details. But the book's also an argument, and it's a pretty provocative argument. One part of that argument argument is, is about this room, and it's about not who appeared in this room, but who didn't appear in this room as part of that argument. And talk to me. What, what do you want the reader of Unchecked to conclude? Want to start? Sure. <laughs> so, look, we wrote a book that is about the Trump impeachments and trials, but it's a book about Congress. Impeachment exists as a congressional power, but there's no rules of the road except for how Congress makes them. And so we're basically making an argument in this book that the way the impeachments and the trials were done because of some people's uh, pulled punches, because of other people's political calculations, because of some people's intentional decision to sideline legislative authority in favor of protecting the person in the White House because of a whole bunch of things that were done by people on both sides of the aisle that, in the end, they kind of weakened the impeachment and weakened their own oversight power going forward, which matters not just for the fact that former President Trump escaped accountability, but also for the power of impeachment as it's used in the future. Um, And so it's both a, you know, a very intense dissection and accounting of history, but also in some ways a cautionary tale. Yeah. I mean, I would say like when it came to Trump's impeachments, there's this sort of narrative that's out there in Washington. It's this sort of notion that, 
you know, Democrats did everything they could to try to tell the nation that he was a bad, terrible person and Republicans protected this man in the White House and put their scruples aside and just, you know, were putting party above country. But our reporting very much indicates that Democrats themselves will privately tell you that they screwed up and they didn't go all the way. They could have done a lot more in terms of investigations, calling in high-profile witnesses, that basically they did a half-assed impeachment. And because of that, Trump emerged stronger. Uh, We talk in the book about how the day he was acquitted in the Senate, his poll numbers were the highest they had ever been in Gallup. Right. And after the first impeachment. After the first impeachment, yeah. yeah. And, you know, even in the second impeachment after January 6th, which you could easily argue was the most important impeachment we've seen in American history, given that a president incited a riot on the Capitol, co-equal branch of government, it was over so quickly without calling people in the trial. And we're going to we're gonna basically challenge that narrative people have out there and show you that everybody's intentions were not uh, all glowy, uh, as people perhaps want to show. And we're going to show you the uh, political calculations that Democrats were making when they chose not to go after certain witnesses and bring mm-hmm. them in and try to turn the nation against Trump. It, so I, I would just add one thing, which is that, you know, we are pretty unsparing in equal measure um, with Democrats and Republicans. Um, There was, people were politically calculating when they professed to publicly be not so. People chickened out of things that they knew were right and chose to do the thing that they knew was not right on both sides of the aisle. And we've got a number of these scenes that I don't think people are aware of and that definitely challenges the narrative by kind of cutting right down the middle and, and calling the calling the mistakes that were made by people of every political persuasion. Yeah. And I, I was going to save this question for the end, but what's confronted head on? Sure. You know, there's this notion of both sides that, you know, it's like this Twitter bugaboo that if you, you know, say that Democrats and Republicans share blame for anything that happens in politics, <laughs> Twitter will go nuts and say, oh, you're both sidesing it. You know, this is an unapologetically both sides book. And you don't shy away from using that the terminology and there's a you know toward the end of the book you write um in the wake of january 6th there had been this brief moment of shared revulsion for what trump had done and at that moment quote both parties failed to do what it would have taken to seize it leaving trump room for a comeback and themselves more riven by political strife than ever now i mean you guys know how this this both sides concept you know can be toxic on social media but why was it important to to call out both sides, frankly. Why did you have to say it so directly? I, you know, it's interesting that you you ask about that and specifically the second impeachment. I remember talking to, for instance, a progressive activist who was asking me about the book and sort of the premise of it, when's it coming out, blah, blah, blah. And one thing that this progressive said to me was, um, I really hope you talk about why Jamie Raskin did not call witnesses after he got the votes to do so in the second trial. Everybody was sort of cheering him on in terms of the Democrats, right? The left. And so I think we're going to tell people that story and we're not going to shy away from it. And I think, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of folks on Twitter who are going to be like, oh, both sides is on both sides and blah, 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 blah. But read the book, read the freaking book, because you're going to see that there's actually a lot of progressives who are not happy with what happened either. And we're going to tell the story and the reason why these decisions were made behind the scenes. So I, I would add to that that I think that a lot of times people have not dug in as far as we did in this book because there's this conception out there that with impeachment, especially with an impeachment and a trial of Trump, that the end justifies some of the means, especially when it's a question of making sure you can get it done in a certain timeline and every, every, and, and with the, the various political winds blowing the way they are. The problem is that some of the people making that argument did not get the end that they intended. And the mm-hmm. means do matter here because the institutions, and, and I know that's it's kind of a boring way of saying it, right? But as much as, you know, uh, impeachments are about the person that is in the office, right, in, in the Oval Office, impeachment is also about impeachment. And it's also about making sure that you have a power that works and doesn't just work tailored to one person, but works and keeps working. And especially when you're talking about this particular, like, you know, the creme de la creme tool of congressional oversight, you need to look at and dissect it how it was done, right? And you can do it well, or you can do it slapdash, you can undermine it, you can cut corners, you can do all kinds of things that are not necessarily going to respect the integrity of, you know, the doing it. 
and and there was evidence in the the decisions that people on both sides of the aisle made, right, of not believing in the power of Congress, basically, and short-circuiting it. And and people have not looked at that part of this as as critically as we do. And we're looking at the players, not just we're not just making a boring legal argument, but like the stakes of it. You know, right. why look at both sides? Because both sides created this situation, and the legacy is going to matter no matter what the party affiliation is of the next person that right. happens to be in the Oval Office that happens to become the next subject of an impeachment trial. So, I mean, if, if you look at the, the the four major congressional leaders who are all characters in this, people have a certain expectation of Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell to a certain degree. I mean, they're, they've made very clear over the course of many years, long congressional careers, uh, what makes them tick. And, you know, they're pretty forthright about it when you, when you ask them, when they say things in public, um, they want Republicans to be in power. They want to be in charge and enacting the policy priorities that, that they believe that, that are best, and they want to be running the show. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, on the other hand, throughout you know, the Trump administration, spoke in different terms. They spoke in terms of lofty things like oaths and principles and the Constitution. No one is above the law. No one Pelosi's is above the law. Tell me what your book says about how reality met that rhetoric. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that was most surprising to me in reporting this book was um, there was this sort of undercurrent that we knew was happening in the first impeachment, but we didn't realize how significant it was. And it's this notion that Nancy Pelosi has always been very sort of timid and skeptical of oversight and especially very aggressive oversight. When it comes to impeachment, she always sort of viewed it as a danger to her majority, right? If you go too far after the president, if you go too hard, your frontliners can get blowback in Trump districts, you can lose the majority, and this can be a problem if you lose the House. And like, when we were all reporting this, we knew that Pelosi in her office, she wasn't saying this publicly and would very yeah, much it refute was... it. But her office was always like, oh, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Like, stop asking this question. We're never going to let it happen. And, you know, the first part of our book, you're going to see this sort of Pelosi very much trying to stop impeachment from happening um, because she saw it as a, you know, a political problem for her party. But then that carried on when she was sort of forced into impeachment when the Ukraine scandal broke and news came out that Trump had tried to strong arm Ukraine. Pelosi was still scared of it, even though she had to accept it and sort of move with the rest of her caucus. And what it did was uh, it sort of made her make these decisions that we get into the book that we think really blew back uh, on the investigations, things like wanting to give it, get it over with very quickly uh, by the end of the year so they can pivot, her frontliners could pivot back to legislating and talking about bills they think would help them in their reelection, things like not going after top witnesses who could actually persuade maybe a Republican voter that Trump was guilty. So there's this sort of undercurrent about Pelosi, and we all know it, we've all sort of known it and seen it from covering her on Capitol Hill, but I, we never, I've never seen a story about Pelosi and this sort of hesitancy and feeling she has had about impeachment for a really long time. And, and so I think that that's one thing that will surprise people in the book. It was kind of there in plain sight. Right. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, she would get asked about it and she would have these offhand comments. No one, no one is above the law is one of them. Um, th there's a number of ways where she would brush it off for months and months and months. But she seemed to have this very firm conception of what the politics of impeachment were. And you spent some time talking about the Clinton impeachment and the, you know, the lessons that Nancy Pelosi personally internalized from that. You know, Republicans go into this, you know, it ends up redounding to Clinton's benefit politically. You know, he comes out with higher approval ratings, although, it, you know, it hampers his presidency and it certainly hampers his legacy. What do you think she learned from that experience or took from that experience? And, you know, how did it bear on how she handled those first nine months of 2019? I mean, she, much like many other Democrats during that time, you know, learned that impeachment was a boomerang or it can be a boomerang right. if it's not a perfect case. Right. 
And that was the experience that the Republicans had in Clinton. It didn't serve them well in the, the elections that followed. And it brought a lot of people that are characters in this book. I mean, you know, we haven't discussed Adam Schiff, but yeah. he came into Congress on the wave of the anti-GOP he sentiment. He beat an impeachment manager to Yes, he did. Uh, come to, to come Congress. and get his seat. And at a time in which that was not a very, not a particularly blue district, right? And so that is something that is part of the legacy that, that they learned from in their earlier political years. Pelosi was soon to become the leader of the Democrats at that point. She was already a mover and shaker in the circles of people that were pulling money and pulling, you know, pulling candidates and making those decisions for the House Democrats. So this was all much part of their formative experience. Um, but you made a point earlier about the language that that people use, right? When you talk about, you know, the call to duty and the importance of the Constitution, all that stuff. Remember, that's politics, too. These people are primary. She would also often say, I'm not a lawyer. Right. <laughs> so like this is not something where, you know, the, the higher calling of the Constitution and only the higher calling of the Constitution is as deep seated in Nancy Pelosi's DNA right. as political acumen is deep seated in her DNA. And so the, the language that she chose to use does not necessarily does not match the motivations that were driving her. Yeah. And the thing is, that as much as that was hanging out in plain sight, we found some really scenes of this stuff happening that kind of illustrate not just what was hiding in plain sight, but what was actually hiding back there in terms of why she made certain decisions at certain times and what was going on behind all of these loftier calls to action. So setting aside the the discrepancy between the rhetoric and reality for Nancy Pelosi, like on the politics, like was she right? I mean, you know, is this sort of Clinton lesson? Is that still hold or is, she, is this the, sort of the classic example of the general fighting the last war? I would say, remember when Trump gave his State of the Union, I think a day or two before he was acquitted in the Senate, and Pelosi was tearing apart her speech. She was furious because if you zoom in on that moment, it's exactly what she predicted and that she was afraid that politically this would hurt Democrats. And at the time, Democrats who had come to embrace impeachment, these vulnerable Democrats, were getting grilled back home. Trump had experienced a little bit of a lift. Um, You know, if the re-election were within a couple of weeks of that or a month of that, who knows what would have happened in terms of his matchup with Biden before the pandemic, et cetera. Uh, Trump was stronger in that moment. And so I think if you look at that moment, you could say Pelosi was right. However, you also have to know, and we talk about in this book, all of part two, the things that she didn't do to try to make it different. Right. And like we go into things over and over again subpoenas that were not enforced or subpoenas that were dropped. One Republican will just say, uh, approaching her and telling her he would impeach if she just goes after John Bolton. And Democrats, they never even did that. They knew John Bolton, for instance, was a key witness in the Ukraine issue. Uh, There was reporting later on that indicated specifically that he had heard something perhaps from Trump's mouth you know, she ended up being right about the political boomerang. However, she never tried to tried her best to make it different. And there were Democrats specifically telling her that we need to do things differently. Right. And she ignored them. So w- w- one of the, th- the through lines to all of this, um, a recurring theme is, you know, the courts uh, being a character here and Pol- not just Pelosi, but other Democrats, Nadler, Schiff, just being constantly frustrated that anything that got litigated was going to end up being this black hole that would prevent the, the, this investigation from moving forward. And, you know, virtually everything is litigated in these interbranch clashes and everything takes forever. And it's pretty clear that Trump took advantage of this and engaged in a run out the clock strategy. So, you know, that fact seems to have shaped a lot of the decisions that were made. Is that a fair I think that people were pretty public about it at the time, that it was shaping the decisions that they made. I mean, Pelosi did not want to be doing an impeachment in the middle of an election season, right? And that if they had, if the courts would have moved faster, they would have had more more reason to turn to them to settle some of these disputes, but that the pace of the courts was too slow. Not saying that's not true. Those were facts of the reality on the ground. However, it doesn't necessarily change the fact that certain decisions were made around those facts that existed that also potentially affected the way in which these impeachments worked and also the way in which impeachment, again, writ large, umbrella impeachment will work going forward. One of the things we talk about in the book is that, and and I actually think we can talk about this because Nadler talked a little bit about this at the time. Nadler always thought that 
he saw right away what Trump was doing, that Trump was trying to drag out the clock, slow down all these investigations till after his reelection, ignoring subpoenas, let the court fights happen, and then nothing will come out. They'll just keep playing out in court. But Nadler, uh, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, he basically had this theory that if we declare that we're in impeachment, the courts will move faster. And that was based on precedent during Nixon that while they were impeachment, the courts moved super fast. Within a couple of months, they were able to get the evidence, and the evidence they got uh, was able to turn Republicans away from the president. But there were sort of complications with that, namely that Nadler wanted to move fast, declare impeachment, go to the courts, et cetera. But Pelosi was not there. She just right. didn't want to. And they sort of, they, yeah. they end up, I won't give too much away either, right. but they end up sort of half-assing it. This is right. one way where, right. where they half-ass it. Yeah. They, they come up with this sort of, you know, finely negotiated thing that has a very interesting name. Nickname. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which we aren't going to get into either. Yeah. I mean, um, look, to, to their credit, which I know we're not doing very much of in the book, but this was a weird impeachment in that the Congress was inventing this on the fly. They didn't have any help from a special prosecutor the way that there had been impeachments passed. And so there is no perfect precedent for this. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but still, the, these arguments that we get into that we show how much clashing there was within the top titans of the Democratic Party about what they were doing, whether they were doing it right, and the choices that they made to do it the way they did it, which in the end were extremely politically motivated. I want to say one more thing, though, about this notion about Nadler and him wanting to declare impeachment to move quickly in terms of subpoenas. Even after they were in impeachment, they never really tested this theory, right? There was already a court case going on from before they went into impeachment with Ukraine. The Don where they McGahn were trying The Don McGahn case, the famous yeah. Don McGahn case. It was taking forever. And we know it scarred them, right? It was taking forever. The Judiciary Committee was worried that their theory perhaps wasn't true after all. And so they never really tested this theory about really going after witnesses when they were in an impeachment right. through the courts to try to get that top evidence, which is interesting because they really be- believed it and really talked about it for so long and they never really tried it. But then this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that there was a there's a fallibility here of a lot of the characters of varying political stripes, right? right? That they don't have, they they speak about the importance of their congressional power and about what Congress has to do, but they're not confident enough in it to to actually do it. And that's true of people on both sides of the aisle in different ways. It manifests itself, but fundamentally speaking, it comes down to being afraid to flex the muscle that you have to its full extent. Of all the characters in this, you know, there's two that are sort of like opposite poles of the sort of democratic psyche here. I mean, uh, Jerry, two you're going to say, I think Jerry Nadler, Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff. And like, it's almost a sitcom. Like (laughs) they're best friends. (laughs) (laughs) Ernie and Bert, you know, Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. It's like, like they're almost out of a sitcom. It's like the reserved uh, California, perfect strangers, the the boisterous New Yorker. (laughs) Yeah. Very poised, well-spoken, always saying things that are right in line with Pelosi. The other very clumsy, gruff, kind of just saying it like it is and getting himself in trouble often with Pelosi. Like it's fair to call it a rivalry. I mean, they had a rivalry for, for virtually all of 2019. And how did that shape what happened in the first impeachment? Well, a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say to start, Nadler... He gets sidelined for a long yeah. time. And I mean... Um, there are initially reasons to sideline him. I mean, that goes back to what I was saying about Congress having to do their investigation for the first time. There was an argument that, you know, Schiff's committee is a natural place to investigate Ukraine, not Nadler's. But in impeachments past, the Judiciary Committee right. has definitely had a bigger role to play yeah. than right. it did in this particular impeachment where I think they interviewed they interviewed the counsels for either side of the, of the investigation, right? And then some legal experts, and that was kind of it. Right. So that's not normal. But the important, like, the, the most important fact to know here is that Nancy Pelosi looks at Adam Schiff and sort of sees herself in the mirror, you know. Yeah. He's her protege. She, she, she they're both, him, not only are they basically. both Californians, both are appropriators and were on the intelligence committee. She just has a sort of level of trust in him that, she has, no one else in the caucus really has. They have had a relationship since before he was actually a lawmaker, and right, that she oh, did yeah. fundraise she for she him. Oh yeah, she fundraised for him. And yeah. they, I mean, she handpicked him to be on the intelligence committee. The leaders always do, but we, I mean, that's part of the formation of their relationship. We get into that in the book too. And they, as you pointed out, they they come from the same sort of political cloth, and so it's 
they, they are just much more simpatico. And also, Schiff is better at these things than Jerry Nadler, as for reasons that Rachel was mentioning before. <laughs> Schiff is good at, you know, appealing to people, managing people. He's And, and Nadler is a little bit less smooth. He's yeah. a little less polished. He'll just tell you what he thinks. Um, well, another reason, too, though, you know, Schiff was her ally, as you see in part one of the book, in terms of batting down impeachment for, mm-hmm. for almost the entire time, at least until the Ukraine scandal breaks. Her wingman. So yeah, he, she's her, he's her wingman. And so, and I would say about the, when, how this sort of impacted the impeachment, I mean, you're going to see in the book, Nadler gets sidelined hardcore after impeachment starts because he's, you know, crosswise with Pelosi, but also he offered a lot of warnings and so did his staff saying they weren't doing certain things right and that it was going to come back to bite them. And they waved him off because Nadler is Nadler and we don't listen to Nadler. Nadler had had studied all these, the the previous impeachments. Yes, he did. You know, he saw himself as the Peter Rodino running the show in the Nixon administration, the Nixon impeachment. And that's Nancy Pelosi decided, sorry, Jerry, that's not what's going to happen here. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he had a picture of Rodino in his his office. office. And definitely, you know, one of his um, idols. Yeah, definitely, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the the, the 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 thing, right? Like, if you look at the leading figures, especially the leading figures in the book from the Judiciary Committee, they are the ones who are the constitutional law experts, you know, either through training or practice or what have you. They're also usually pretty darn liberal. They don't match the type of Democrat politically that people like Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff are, even if they also have this kind of encyclopedic uh, encyclopedic understanding of the constitutional stakes. And so there's a mismatch there. Yeah. So how how would this how would the first impeachment have looked different if Jerry Nadler had been empowered, if he'd been in charge, if he had been allowed to follow his his heart's desire? Instincts. Look, <laughs> it probably would have taken a lot longer. Yes. It probably would have included another romp through various fact witnesses. There may have been more of a play for certain other fact witnesses. The thing is that we can't say it would have ended differently. We, you know, we don't know. Yeah. But we know that the that the precedent set by that impeachment would have emerged looking different. And beyond certain witnesses going longer, bigger staff, maybe fighting longer in the courts, I don't know. One thing that Nadler really wanted to do, and we knew this back in back in the day, was he wanted to expand beyond Ukraine. He wanted to go deeper in the Mueller right, report, wanted, right? Um, sure. And so you'll see in the book that there's sort of this tension going on between this behind the scenes between Democrats, where you have some Democrats, namely like Pelosi, Schiff, their sort of allies, the frontliners who are afraid about losing their seats, wanting to focus only on Ukraine. And then you have Democrats like Nadler, like Jamie Raskin, who were privately saying, you know, Trump has is breaking norms left and right. Why are we only looking at Ukraine? Like if we expand the narrative, maybe we can convince more people Basically, this concern that Ukraine wasn't cutting it in terms of reaching the American people and that they needed to do more. Um, So I think if Nadler would have had his own impeachment, we would have seen a lot more impeachment charges and a lot more investigative branches. So you mentioned Jamie Raskin. Um, And to the extent that this book has a protagonist, it's Jamie Raskin. Mm -hmm. He's this brilliant, rumpled Maryland congressman. He's just an incredibly compelling character. He's always incredibly fun to talk to. And he's got this incredible tragic story that you sort of, you open the book with it. You know, his experience on January 6th, literally days after he buries his son. And, you know, talk about Jamie Raskin and how he led you as as this sort of guide through these two impeachments and the, the roles that he played. So everybody has now seen Jamie Raskin be at the centerpiece, the, the center of the Democrats' second impeachment yes. against Trump. He told many parts of his own personally tragic story from that podium when he was leading the charges and the prosecution against Trump the second time. What people I don't think realize is how much of a role he had played behind the scenes in all of impeachment writ large. Jamie Raskin didn't have that many years under his belt in Congress by the time we started talking about impeachment in Congress, but he had a lot of constitutional experience in his back pocket. And he used that and he was a mover and a shaker and behind the scenes from day one, from day zero, really, in all of this, as there was the tensions yeah. that we were just talking about between Nadler and Pelosi. I think it's worth putting a point. He was a professor of constitutional yeah. law at yeah. American University. He'd been in the Maryland State Senate for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. I remember calling him when I was at City Paper because he was an expert on D.C. statehood <laughs> and constitutional <laughs> I didn't know that. stuff. Okay. 
Um, and he just loved talking to like he, I couldn't get him off the phone talking about it. And he was involved in lawsuits trying to get DC more voting rights. But yeah, he, I mean, he only came, he gets elected for the first time in 2016, but right. he brings, he comes to DC the same time that Trump does. Basically. Right. And yeah. he, but he brings all of this expertise in these matters and, there's really nobody like in the caucus who's can really rival that. I mean, is no, that there isn't, yeah. there isn't. And he's, but the thing is that he's not officially really like, he's not a chairman, right? Yes. He's on her leadership team, but he's not somebody who's so seasoned that he has the microphone in a way that he can, t- can turn things around, but that doesn't stop him from trying, from trying. And all, so, the time. all the time. Right. And so all the things that we were talking about with Jerry Nadler, um, Jamie Raskin is a force behind the scenes for all of those, sometimes even more so than Jerry Nadler. Yeah. I mean, I would say like he perfectly uh, sort of encompasses this theme we have in our book about missed opportunities in that Raskin, like Nadler, was one of the Democrats behind the scenes who saw problems with what was going on in terms of their strategy. Saw them early. Yes. Yeah. And he saw them early. Um Either what I'm not going to get into specifics, maybe moving quicker, expanding, you know, beyond Ukraine, et cetera. And he was always sort of raising this alarm saying we're doing this wrong. And he was always sort of batted down by the speaker, this sort of pesky progressive, as he's sort of depicted in the book. And then after January 6, you know, it's interesting because Pelosi, she has like a change of heart where he is concerned. And she turns to him for the second impeachment and gives him a shot at this. Right. There's um, a, and, and when we were talking about Schiff and Nadler, like there is sort of, sort of a reversal of fortune after January 6th, where Schiff gets sidelined. Right. Pelosi turns to Raskin. And, you know, Jerry Nadler is, is dealing with his wife's illness and isn't really the alternative, but Jamie Raskin is here at this incredibly um, momentous and tragic time in his life. And he steps up and he ends up winning the most uh, opposite party votes for any impeachment in American history. Yeah. But. Could he have won more? There's a but. Yes. Talk about the but. Well, I would say one thing about Nadler in the first, before impeachment even started, he and there's a group of his allies on the Judiciary Committee called, they call themselves the Four Musketeers, um, or their aides call them the Four Musketeers, I should say. And they play this role where, you know, throughout investigations before impeachment and during impeachment, they're always pressing the leadership to leave no stone unturned, issue those subpoenas, subpoena this person, subpoena that person, fight in court, go after them, do not hold back. And so what you see in the second impeachment, and I, it was so funny because like when she named Jamie Raskin and these his friends, the four Musketeers, as impeachment managers. Karn and I were like texting each other, like, oh my gosh, the characters from our first impeachment story are now front and center in the second impeachment story. It was just full circle. Anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, so you sort of see that same, the same debate happening behind the scenes in the second and now, But he's, he now, he's not the, the gadfly on the outside, you know, being the, the pesky guy who's yeah. trying to get Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi to do things differently. He's the guy who's in the room making the decisions. Right. And it all comes to a lot of this has been reported. So yes. I'm going to stick yeah, to yeah, what's totally. on the record. Right. All right. You know, at the in the second at the second Senate trial, we get down to the last day. The, the trial is supposed to wrap up, and there's this big debate over witnesses, and they put it to the Senate. The Senate votes, okay, let's call witnesses. Right. Jamie Raskin is at the, you know, at the center of this. And then in the next, what was it, three, four, five, six hours? Two hours, in fact. Two hours, yep. excuse me. God, it felt like, <laughs> I remember having to write on deadline that yep. day about oh, what yeah. was happening in that room. Oh, yeah. It took um, a few more hours before it all ended. So, but yeah. Yeah, but they, they yeah. came. Yep. But the, the, you can look at lots of turning points, and, and there are lots of turning potential turning points that you guys identify, but this is one of them. And Jamie Raskin decides that, actually, no. Look, you're right. Yeah. A really pivotal day for so many things. Um, you're right. It's different being on the outside than it is being on the inside. The responsibility of being the decision maker is different than being the decision, a- attempting to influence the decision. And at, at, just a little bit of the backstory on what Rachel was saying a second ago, because I think that's actually kind of important to illustrating this point. Yeah. Rachel and I started writing this book thinking we were writing it about one impeachment. We basically finished our manuscript right before January 6th happened, realized we had to rip it up and start all over again because mm-hmm. it was happening again. Yeah. The second impeachment in many ways was like the answer to the first one. It, 
they never happened in such close proximity. It was a chance for people to learn from mistakes that were made, right? It was a chance to kind of correct things that had been done wrong. It was a chance for a new set of characters to drive the car, to drive the impeachment bus, right? And yet, in the end, these same sorts of things, same sorts of weights, many of them political, ended up bringing things down and weighting them down in extremely shockingly similar ways than they had the first time. And in that way, like, you know, as you said, Raskin is the closest. He's not really a protagonist throughout, but he's the closest thing we have to a protagonist given the role that he plays in different ways. But he's like a Shakespearean kind of protagonist, right? Like so you can't. So that's there's my no, question. There's here. no superhero he, here that's going to save the planet, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, our warning is that things are not as you know as cohesive as they necessarily could used to be, and we are in a situation in which there's questions about what impeachment's going to be going forward. So he, yeah, my question was, I mean, is he a tragic hero or is he? Yeah, a hero? yeah. of course he's a tragic hero. He's there a, are no joyful heroes in impeachment. Yeah. You saw what happened, <laughs> very right? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I remember. I remember when that was happening and Raskin shocked like all of Washington and called witnesses when everybody from the reporters to the senators to the leadership team, everybody thought the trial was going to end that day. They weren't going to call witnesses that they were just going to do quick presentations and move on to the Biden agenda. And I remember tweeting something like, I am totally unsurprised because I have covered Jamie Raskin for so long. This is very in character with him. Like he would not hang up something if he felt like he could get more. But then within two hours, right, he changes course, and we're going to tell you why. And I won't. But yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I won't give away it was shocking. the details, yeah. but the weight <laughs> of yeah. the entire Democratic Party and more comes to bear on him. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I would say, yes, he got, in. and Raskin, you know, when you talk to him about this, sometimes he, I kind of get the notion that, you know, he's a little defensive about that decision, but he, you know, he'll point out the fact that he has got more Republicans or people of the opposite party to vote to convict a president than anybody had before, which is true. But had he, and I think when you read the book, you're going to see how close certain people were to maybe changing their votes. Could he have gotten more if he had subpoenaed Jamie Herrera Butler to sit on the stand and talk about what she heard from McCarthy and then went after McCarthy or, you know, maybe not even them, maybe Pence aides, et cetera. What would have happened uh, if you look at everything that has come out with the January 6th committee, which is doing the exact opposite strategy, ironically, as Democrats had during both of these impeachments. They are going hard after everybody. They're using the courts. What if they had done that in that moment when Trump was very vulnerable could they have turned more people yeah. against him? And, and I, I want to, what's the, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about Democrats here. Yes, I think it's time to sure. talk about the Republicans. Oh, yeah. In particular, I think, you know, a lot of the book is about Pelosi and uh, Schiff and Raskin and Nadler. But, you know, when you finish the book, you know, Mitch McConnell is probably the most consequential character in the whole narrative. Uh, you know, in the first impeachment, he and his team, his counsel, Andrew Ferguson, they're basically running the, they're directing the defense in a lot of ways. You guys had an excerpt published in the Washington Post that kind of gets into this sort of outsized role that Mitch McConnell himself played in the first impeachment. And then in the second impeachment, you make this convincing argument that, you know, the difference between Trump getting a conviction and not getting a conviction was his vote. That if he had voted to convict or or gone in that direction that others would have followed. They would have, they could have gotten the 67 votes. Talk about Mitch McConnell and what would have had to have to have happened differently to convince Mitch McConnell and win a conviction. I think he was convinced already. He knew Trump was guilty. It was just a matter of, was he going to take that vote? That off ramp as he called it. The off ramp. Yeah. Basically this excerpt, it zooms in into this moment when Rand Paul forced a vote early on whether or not it was constitutional to impeach a former president, which is... To to convict a former president. To convict a former president. Yeah, Yeah. on one level, and just to set the scene, this was a procedural vote, but it was also very clear what it was. It was a test vote on conviction. Right. And if you don't get 67 senators saying that the the trial is constitutional, that... It dims your chances. It dims your chances at the very least. Right. So what's happening at this moment behind the scenes and... What is Rand Paul essentially doing to Mitch McConnell here? He boxed him in. And that, I mean, I think it's it's such a tragic sort of day and anecdote. But McConnell, ever since this argument had been out there for about almost two weeks by that point, this notion that you can't convict a former president, 
a lot of his Trumpian members start to sort of coalesce around that. And he thinks it's bull. Uh, he argues with his top counsel, Andrew Ferguson, about whether or not, like, why would this make sense? He says something along the lines of, why would the framers put uh, impeachment in the Constitution and allow if they wanted to these bar- sorts of restrictions to be put on it, if they didn't expect right. that it could actually be used, which is another way of basically making the argument that Jamie Raskin did publicly about there being a quote unquote January, January exception. exception. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. So he's he's like not buying this argument, but his party's rallying around it. And he specifically wanted senators to hear from top Republican constitutional lawyers for that argument, but also against that argument. And Rand Paul forces this vote right after a lunch where they had just heard the arguments for this argument, basically right. this notion that you can't convict a former president. They hadn't yet heard the opposite argument. And so they go to the floor. Well, and we should say that McConnell was trying to set up a whole scheme, basically, that we, we lay out in which you would have people come in to make the arguments both right. for and against. He was trying to do this in right. the most hands-off way possible so that he could then be like, I have listened to everything and here is now my decision. Yours could be too, right? right. But Rand Paul sandbags him. Yes, yes, very much. And he goes to his office and is thinking about what to do. His staff doesn't even know what he's going to be doing. And these senators, who are all, some of them who are also skeptical of this argument, are on the floor asking his staff, what's he going to do? These senators who want cover, and Liz Cheney, as we report in this excerpt, had been encouraging McConnell, step out, say you're going to convict him, people will follow you. Like, you will get enough, they'll get enough, you know, to convict and bar Trump from running from office. But McConnell, he doesn't ever do that. He doesn't do a whip check. And then he walks on the floor and he votes with the Rand Pauls of the world. Uh, and gets and what's no the guidance effect? to what, what message does he send with that vote? That he's not willing to take the risk, right? And and because that of Trump that, Trump can't be convicted. Yeah, that this is over yeah. before it began. It is. It and, was. And part of the the whole interesting thing about this excerpt is that it shows how much McConnell was looking. He's the leader, right? And yet he keeps looking for guidance from all of these people. He appeals to Liz Cheney. You know where Liz Cheney is going to be on this, right? He appeals to Lindsey Graham. You know where Lindsey Graham is going to be. We have him going, wrapping this back and forth with his with his senior counsel to try to, you know, just kind of um, stress test th- this idea. And then he sets up a whole chess pieces of like, I'll have this lunch with this person, this lunch with this people, and they will make the arguments before I have to actually right. step in and show my cards. Right. We juxtapose this with things that McConnell has written in his own biography, right? Um, which is the, uh, the autobiography, excuse me, um, which is his mentor. Um, Cooper, Senator Cooper. Right. John Sherman Cooper. Exactly. Right. Who has said things like a leader can't check a poll on every issue. Like sometimes it's your job to lead. And like the, the thing is that there are episodes in Mitch McConnell's past where he was, you know, real bought into that stuff. He writes about it, yeah. In the he memoir. writes about yeah, it in the he memoir. He clearly was ma- he, moved I mean, by it, yeah. in the eighties with you know uh, the apartheid vote in South Africa, things like that, where he like breaks with his party, right? So he's done it in the past, but less and less, I suppose, as the leader of the party to look for all of the people to lead him in his decision making, just kind of shows both that internal agonizing, but also shows his unwillingness to step up to the the bat of, you know, it's his moment to lead his party and he doesn't do it. I I remember somebody saying to me when we were reporting this book, um, McConnell first and foremost views himself as the leader of a caucus. And basically this notion that he would go against the majority of his his caucus, that was always going to be tough. And that was like one of the sort of deal breaker things that he you include, was not willing to, to You do include that. The, this quote in the book that yeah. I, it had been published previously. I'm sorry, I forget where, but like uh, it, it quotes him as saying, like, I didn't get to be where I am by following Oh, five yeah, that was it. That caucus. was in right. um, Alex Burns and Jonathan Martin's book. Yes, yeah. we uh, inserted that at the last minute. Uh, citing them. Yes, citing them, of course. But it's <laughs> perfect. It perfectly captures sort of his headspace at that moment. So keeping the focus on the Republicans, the, the, the you know, the book implies or it says outright, it, it argues that Trump could have been so- stopped by impeachment. He could have been impeached. He could have been barred from future office, although convicted. I know that's con- convicted. He was impeached. Sorry. Sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> Technically. People are going to jump down their throats right. about that. So just um, making sure. <laughs> you know, that it not only could have, you know, driven him from office and kept him from future office, but it could have broken this sort of enchantment that, you know, a third of the country has with him. Um, lots of people are going to read this book and think Trump survived plenty over the years and he held the Republican Party in thrall through all of it. Why is it credible to think that a different kind of impeachment could have changed that? 
again, there's not one person that's at fault for any of this. I feel like we need to make that point because it's various elements from both sides uh, played a role. But had McConnell not gone with this Rand Paul vote early on, had that opened window still been left, had the Democrats taken that space in that window to pull in a whole bunch of much more convincing to the GOP type witnesses that might have been available. We're talking about the second impeachment here, right? Could that have gotten you to 67? It's possible. Yeah. You know, can we say that it definitely would have happened? No, we cannot. Can we say that it's entirely Mitch McConnell's fault? No, we cannot. Can we say it's entirely Jamie Raskin's fault for not putting up those witnesses? No, we cannot. But if all of those things had broken differently, you might have ended up in a situation where somebody who was inclined to believe Trump was guilty might have had the guts to actually say yes, because the Democrats put on so, so much of a more convincing show. But none of that happened. So there are a lot of different, you know, fault lines, basically, where this the fate of Trump being acquitted was potentially sealed. And yet, if they had broken the other way, if people hadn't made all these decisions, you can see a situation in which McConnell saying, I'm done, brings a whole, I mean, brings the Rob Portmans of this world along, yeah. brings a yeah. whole bunch of people that sure. were, yeah. you know, that we were thought might be in play that weren't and that t- tend to fall in line behind Mitch McConnell. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, like, they were 10 away, 10, 10 senators, 10 Senate Republicans away, right? They um, made deals for other types yeah. of bills on less of a margin. And I know impeachment's it, huge, but... Yeah, but, but also, given but also, where I Senate... But mean, a lot of senators. It like, is, but you know, you know, I mean, you, you were reporting on it too, how many of them were totally done with him in that moment yeah. and where the country there's was. A lot, there's a lot of people Again, would say in, in the Republican Senate, in the McConnell sphere anyway, yeah. who would say, well, it's one thing to bring along... Uh, 10 or 15 or 20 senators on an infrastructure deal. It's another one, another thing entirely to basically rebuke the the most popular figure in your own party. Mm-hmm. Sure. But whether or not Congress botched impeachment is not just dependent on whether or not Trump was convicted, yeah, right? It's also, which I keep saying like a broken record, but what is the legacy of the impeachment that you're left with after Trump? What does impeachment now look like? Because they're two of the four impeachments that Congress has ever done to completion happened in this short time span, right? Two of the four impeachments of the modern era that Congress ever started happened in this short time span. This is going to, and it's the most recent ones, right? So now we used to have impeachments that always had witnesses involved, that had witnesses involved in the Senate, that had various things that were, you know, bipartisan that went along the way. These things don't, Exist, exists now as the most recent precedent that is yeah. dominant, right? And so you can tell us we're wrong in thinking that there might have been a possibility to get 67 senators to convict Trump. Okay, I can't prove that maybe that right. would have been a possibility. Sure. But we can say that impeachment now looks different. And the standard to which people have to appeal to say this is worth impeaching over, not not substance-wise, but like this is what an impeachment should look like to become an impeachment has changed. It's much lower. And which is why, you know, and we should talk about Biden at some point, but I think one of the things we talk about in the epilogue is that we think impeachment is going to become a regular sort of expression of partisan rage from now on, because it's so much easier to impeach a person now. You don't have to you don't, yeah, have to more, record, you don't have to convince I mean, most of the nation that a president... You break down at the real. end, you break down two yeah. lessons about right. impeachment. And the first is it has if it's going to be successful, it has to be bipartisan and not just at the back end, at the front end. And the second lesson is what you're, you're saying, which is the institution of impeachment has been forever changed by this. Throughout the book, you sort of draw this distinction between politics and principle. And the politicians acted like politicians. They didn't act like stewards of the Constitution or stewards of impeachment. Um, if there's a through line here, it's that each of the, you know, you look at each of the congressional leaders, they all played the politics perfectly as far as they saw them. That should not be surprising. They each got to the position they were are in because they're very good politicians, uh, at least in their internal caucus politics. So how do you square the fact that the constitution lays out this process, this very solemn check and balance against the executive branch, but entrusts it to these political animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? You don't square it. First of all, I don't think they were perfect politicians because they didn't quite get the exact objectives that they set out to get. Nancy Pelosi did not expand her majority. Mitch McConnell did not keep his majority. Like various things like that did not, people didn't quite read the tea leaves exactly right. But 
But, you know, everybody's human. Nobody completely read the tea leaves on what would happen in 2020 exactly, right, by in, in the year before anyhow. In terms of them having to wear the two hats, I mean, this has always been the challenge, right? And I think that people, many lawmakers went on record about during the, the time about like, yeah, I'm a juror, but I'm also supposed to represent my constituency. And I think that this is this this whole trial is one way or right. the other, et cetera, right? Look, the birth of the first political party was, what, 1796 or something like that? And the Constitution was written in 1787. It is not a perfect document. It did not predict a whole bunch of stuff that now governs it. So the reason that we argue about this stuff before the Supreme Court so much is that there's a lot of gray area in the Constitution. And yeah, it gave Congress the power of impeachment, but it didn't tell them how to use it. And it's just the reality that we live in that each Congress that attempts it has to make this decision between... How, how politically to handle it and how institutionally to handle it. And that is the push and pull. And those are the stakes, unfortunately. And the stakes are rising and rose higher during these last two because of the level of the action that precipitated Congress to say, hey, we need to impeach this guy over it. And I think we would actually, you know, from just the reporting in the book, we could say that, you know, had Republican or had Democrats sort of put the, the fact finding first, the sort of constitutional duty piece first, to sort of turn, leave no stone unturned, you know, go after this guy with the full force of Congress that politically would have helped them, right? I mean, like, in theory. Uh, we will never know, I guess, but, um, yeah. That's. At any point, was there any congressional leader who distinguished themselves at any point in this saga? Congressional leader, like, among the quartet? Not, not, not necessarily the top four, but, you know, somebody who was entrusted with um, a role in this and distinguish themselves. What do you mean by that? I, well, I mean, you know, I, you could say Jamie Raskin distinguished himself. It doesn't mean that he was successful or that he won at yeah. the end, right? I mean, this is the problem, right? There's no hero that came to save us all because that's just not the way real life works and that's not the way history worked. Um, there's people that tried certain things. He's not the only character. And I'm, But J- Jamie Raskin, just in the context of, of Jamie Raskin just being this sort of gadfly throughout the first impeachment, he's not only pushing for on the Ukraine stuff, he's not just pushing on Mueller. He in particular probably leads among Democrats on this whole other realm of Trump misconduct, and that is about his businesses and what gets shorthanded as emoluments. But he he doesn't really find an audience for this. Can you talk about that a little <laughs> yeah. bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, just sort of uh, grouping Jamie Raskin in with this idea of missed opportunities. Um, we have this excerpt that just ran in Playbook about him trying to tell Pelosi that the Ukraine narrative it wasn't working, and that you know it was too complicated. And basically, he wants her to expand the impeachment so that people can follow it more and see why Trump shouldn't be in the White House. He always said that uh, the original sin, remember he always used the phrase original sin of Trump's presidency was that he didn't divest from his company and basically said the president was using the White House as a money-making operation. And he believed that if people sort of saw that and if Democrats made this case, it would resonate more right. with it's, independent it's easy, voters. It's yeah. sort of easy to understand. You're yeah, profiting corruption, from your office. Exactly, yeah. corruption. Um, and so, you know, in this excerpt, he basically, he's been trying to get Pelosi to have this vote in the House, telling Trump that he cannot uh, take emoluments, basically take money from uh, foreign dignitaries staying at his hotel to try to, you know, carry favors favor with him or other high profile sort of special interests trying to sort of get his attention and, and spending money at Trump hotels. And he's trying to get Pelosi to have this vote. And she says, I'm not a lawyer. And her office says, well, the frontliners don't want to do it because, you know, it'll hurt them politically, basically. And so Raskin keeps trying to tell her to do this. Uh, she keeps ignoring him. And then ultimately, as we wrote in Playbook, uh, two days after Trump is acquitted, a judge throws out a case where Democrats had basically been suing Trump on this issue. Uh, because they never took this vote in the House. And so he's sort of this character that, again, just bringing up all this stuff to the leadership team, saying they're doing it wrong and they're gonna it's going to blow back. And he was right. Yeah. Turned out Jamie Raskin was right and the Pelosi's caution cost them. Jamie Herrera Butler is not a household name, but she is a figure in this book. In the first impeachment, she's at least initially curious about the possibility of perhaps entertaining a support for Trump's first impeachment, she decides pretty quickly that the, the House is trying to shortcut the procedure and that, you know, and, and she doesn't want to be a part of that. In the second impeachment, 
she's a she's a witness. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, not in the trial, but yeah. Um, but- yeah she it's it's really interesting because she was a character in the first impeachment. She sort of is this person who represents a moderate Republican who had a problem with what Trump did with Ukraine and isn't sure sort of how to handle it. And I'll just sort of leave it at that. You can sort of read more about her story in the first impeachment. But she sort of like struggled with it. And I think when it when, she struggled with it pretty openly, like, yeah, she, you yeah. know, the leadership was aware that she was on the fence, at least for a while. They, they got her off of the fence. In the second impeachment, like she ends up being this crucial figure, especially on that crazy day, that crazy Saturday, the last day of the Senate trial, where um, it's come out that she's recounted this conversation with Kevin McCarthy, where McCarthy basically describes how Trump is basically supporting the mob. Yeah. And she goes on record and talks about it. And it sort of upends the trial. Uh, And I mean, she would end up losing her seat. She just got she lost her primary. So, I mean, she's kind of. I think her story is like really interesting because she's this Republican who's really trying, she's really trying to do the right thing. She ends up, you know, voting to impeach Trump the second time around. Not only that, but like you said, going public with what she knew and she pays the price for it. I mean, she lost her seat. So, so we're in this era of incredibly polarized, you know, you know, absolutely fierce hand to hand politics you've already made the case that we're, we're destined to have these sort of, you know, snap half-ass impeachments going forward. What would have to change to really divorce the impeachment process from the, the that sort of political wrangling? Man, I don't, I don't know that we're going to see that for a really long time. I mean, if we'll ever see it. I mean, obviously, both experts and lawmakers will tell you that Nixon was the best president in terms of how they did that impeachment and got him to step down before they even impeached him. But so far, we haven't seen anybody willing to sort of take that model. I just honestly, I don't I don't know that they could yeah. ever get back to this, because when Republicans take the House, I mean, the Nixon gonna, impeachment at this point is all, is almost the exception to the rule. Like, the, yeah, that impeachment lasted you know, all of the investigations, the special counsel investigation, the Senate Watergate committee, the House impeachment, you know, that plays out over the course of two plus years. Right. Can a modern Congress, does it have that sort of attention span to spend two years in, in the, it add to that, the media environment? Yeah. Not only Congress. Well, it doesn't but... work right now because you're never, because you keep flipping Congress at the two year mark. Like there's not enough time. Yeah. I mean, when Trump yeah. came in, like it's, it's, it, you haven't had the, the control of Congress be in a way where you actually get the four years to do that. Yeah. There's, a, there's also the public's attention span. Yeah. I think one thing that really hurt Democrats was that, you know, people sort of got sick of investigations. There was this sort of... Um, the shock value went yeah, down. Yeah, I mean, exactly. remember when Nixon was president, I think Watergate actually happened right before the... June before the election. Yeah. Right, before the, his reelection. But this was the guy who was, you know writing nuclear arms deals and making peace, like brokering diplomatic relations with China and, and saying Vietnam was problematic. I mean, like he was just so larger than life. That it's like, how could this guy do something that petty? And it took a year and a half of not 24 hour news environment and no social media, Twitter, et cetera, to convince people that actually, no, it was this bad. And to convince his own peers in the party that sent him running before he could actually even be impeached to the most intro level of the whole process, right? We were inured. Look, Trump was in many ways a stress test for the system, right? And we were already inured to that by the time he took office. Like there was so much already that was going around about, you know, things that Trump had said and things that Trump had done that by the time he was the president doing and saying things, we were shocked by it, but we were getting less and less shocked every day. You know, it's it's not surprising in a way that the one thing that seemed to stop everybody short was an actual physical assault on the Capitol. And even that didn't last that long because you can't, you build up a, you know, thicker skin and exoskeleton to like, oh, how shocking is that after a while, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole country went through that. Yeah, and people just start to tune out. I mean, I can't tell you how many, how many people I've talked to who are not sort of Washington types who are not even following January 6th committee stuff. It's yeah, just their people mean, are done. They're, they're, yeah. yeah. That's why at a certain point, it's not about the ends justifying the means and the person and like the actual particulars of the case. All of that matters tremendously. But if you don't preserve the impeachment, then it's just about that. And then it's like the, the structure of impeachment and the way impeachment's done, you could almost sub in anything that gets a political party riled up to take down a president yeah. that you don't happen to like for any reason. And that's the danger of it, right? There was never 
a description or a prescription in the Constitution of what sort of thing is a high crime or misdemeanor. That's a very loose term that mm-hmm. we right. can define as we choose to define it. It's been defined in a number of and different ways. It and it's debated. And you can say, you know, okay, fine. Like, you know, spitting your chewing gum on the ground is not a high crime or misdemeanor. And probably everybody would agree, would agree with you. But it does rely on, the whole thing relies on this ability of everybody to agree on what's reasonable. And the definition of what is reasonable for people in this political environment is changing. It, it, and, and the ability to get agreement about that is becoming harder and harder. There's a lot of what ifs that this reading this book is going to put in everyone's mind, you know, the you know, counterfactuals, turning points. But I wonder if there's one in each of your minds that sticks out to you as you know, what if they had made this decision instead, um, whether it's Bolton, whether it's. Jamie Herrera Butler. Yeah, I think that's question. the one. That's the moment for me, one hundred percent. I mean, like the what if, it, the moment where Raskin moves to call witnesses and the Senate votes to call witnesses, but then he sort of caves two hours later uh, and ends the second trial very quickly. That moment, I think, is like I just. You just gotta wonder. I just I gotta wonder. I mean, I was running around my house pulling my hair out, like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be huge. He's gonna subpoena all these people. They're gonna potentially convict Trump. Oh my goodness, like I cannot believe, except I can believe because I've covered Jamie Raskin for so long and it doesn't surprise me. That was the moment I think that my blood pressure like went very high. Uh and then all of a sudden it was over. I would agree with Rachel. I would also say another moment, frankly, is this interaction between McConnell and Rand Paul that you just read about, you know, of him letting himself basically get rolled by a junior senator from his state who clearly was in Camp Trump, you know, just that one minor thing that is on a procedural issue blew up all of his confidence, blew up his carefully orchestrated strategy to try to leave this possibility open. And, you know, that's the other side of the coin, right, from the second impeachment that could have actually potentially altered things. Yes. So that's another one. Karen, Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is senior producer. Brooke Hayes is senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Mike DeBonis, Playbooks editor. Thanks for listening.